On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menners, and joining me in studio is social media sensation Paul, the summer game Dennett, a cricket analyst. He loves the game almost as much as anyone I know. Welcome, Paul Dennett. How are you? Good, Menners. Great to be here. Thanks for that um, somewhat crazy introduction, but um, I think that I'm in a very good mood. Uh, uh, very disappointed that Australia lost the Test Series to, to India, but one one-day win shouldn't make me so happy. But for some reason it did. Maybe it was the retro uniforms, the big crowd at the SCG. It was a bit of a, a nostalgic trip back to when one-day cricket meant more than it sound, sometimes seems to do. So, yeah, I'm feeling pretty perky. Well, great to have a perky Paul Dennett for our listener mail show. So, yes, the agenda has been set by you, the listener. Overall summer, really, I've been calling for listener emails and uh, I've had a great response. So now it's time to, to go through them all. And there's some really great topics for discussion that you, the listeners, have come up with. So Paul and I are going to go through all that. We're also going to discuss Australia's victory in the first one-day international of their three-match series versus India and the significance of India's first ever Test Series win in Australia. So lots to come. And I want to thank all the listeners out there that took the time to send in emails. If I don't get a chance to read yours out in today's show, uh, thank you so much anyway for sending all your messages in. And also a special shout out to all the uh, the listeners of the podcast I met during the Sydney test. I met uh, Brownie and uh, Andrew and Phil Rout, the two brothers that have been uh, on the Maxwell bandwagon for a long time. So yeah, it was great to meet some listeners of the podcast in person. So thanks uh, for sending a message and asking to meet up. And also I was preparing for this show and I was counting up, Paul, that Cricket Unfiltered is heard in at least 99 different countries around the world. So that's about half the world. Well, I was just looking at the list that you've got here of all the countries, and they're in order, I presume, of most hits um, to least. As you would expect, Australia, UK, India are the top three. But what's interesting, and this is consistent with what I've always seen whenever I see a list like this, USA at number four shows um, you know, the USA, which is always regarded as a, a place where cricket can never succeed, uh, with the you know, the expat population from cricket playing countries around the world living there and with its just enormous population, there is a future for the game in that country. Absolutely. And T20 is the way to go for USA cricket. Yeah, but we've got listeners from all over the world. Benin, Uruguay, Belgium, Brazil, Indonesia, everywhere. So thanks to everybody that have sent emails and, and reviews in from all around the world. But let's get straight into it, Paul. The first email and the first item on the agenda has been set by Lee Couchman. Thanks, Lee, for sending in your email. And this is what he's written. If cricket is our game, then the selectors need to stop treating the fans of the team as idiots. 
Selection needs to be clear to the players and fans. Selectors need to be full-time and well-compensated and fully accountable, just like the players and the coaches. And he ends his email saying, can it change? Well, Paul, what's your thoughts on uh, Lee's comments? I really agree with Lee's comments. And I I think that there always has seemed to me to be a somewhat part-time approach to the to the selection panel. That remember was it um, was it Andrew Hilditch who was kind of had a he still had his law business or something while he was doing it. That he's absolutely right, Lee. There should be however many selectors are needed, and they should be devoting every every minute of the day to it. If there was a revealing poll that showed who watched the most Sheffield Shield cricket between you menners and all of the selectors. I would hope that it would show the selectors watch more than you, but I couldn't be convinced that they do. Um, I'm just not sure how absolutely focused on, on things as they should be as they are. Yeah, good point, Paul. And, you know, one of the things that frustrates me is the sort of logic that goes into selection seems to change all the time. So, you know, one one year they're picking players for experience. The next year they're, they're picking youth. One year they're picking players from the Big Bash. Uh, sometimes they're not. It just seems like the logic and thought going into the selections seems to be changing all the time. And I think it would be better if, if the fans of the game had a bit more of an insight into what the, what thoughts are going into making these selections. And I think it was sort of uh, noticeable that Trevor Holmes came out and did a press conference for the announcement of the squad to play Sri Lanka. And uh, yeah, I think it will change, uh, Lee, because I when I asked Trevor Holmes at the press conference whether they were looking at bringing some younger faces into the selection panel. He said everything is up for a review. So I think uh, Kevin Roberts and Cricket Australia are looking at restructuring the selection panel. The other thing I'd like to see is, to, to your point, Menas, how they seem to change the goalposts as to what they're looking for. I would like to see every time they select a side that they also have to release what the side would have been had they picked purely on numbers. They don't have to pick purely on numbers, but I'd like to see who are the top six batsmen currently playing with their top six averages, same with the bowlers, and then them explain why they've gone away from that if they have. So, for example, why did they pick Labuschagne over Glenn Maxwell when Maxwell has a demonstrably better record with bat and ball than Labuschagne? That needs to be formally addressed in um, you know in a way more more so than they're doing now. And I think that... By forcing them to do that, maybe sometimes they'd say, actually, we don't want to have to justify that. We will pick a bit more on numbers. Mm. And, and look, mystifying selections seem to alienate the fans. So I think a more transparent and open selection panel is the way to go. All right, the next email, Adam Patterson. Thank you for emailing in. Hi, Manners. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Wondering if you think we should use these two tests against Sri Lanka to play Renshaw, Sanger and Pekofsky. Well, obviously the selectors have uh, agreed with you, Adam, because they've picked Renshaw and Pekofsky in the Sri Lankan Test Series. And uh, I think Sanger's probably not quite ready yet for Test cricket. He's not hasn't shown the consistency of a, a Pekofsky. Um, maybe you could argue Renshaw hasn't either, but Renshaw's shown something at Test level in the past. What do you think of bringing in Pekofsky and Renshaw for the Sri Lankan Test, Paul? I really like it. I would have had Renshaw in the side for the uh, for the Indian Test matches as well. I think that the the century I saw Renshaw score in county cricket um, during the winter, there's just something about him that makes me think he's potentially a long term player at Test level. He got a triple century in grade cricket this summer in Brisbane, and people say, oh, it's only grade cricket, but 
that, that's something that I don't think that a lot of players are attending to do. So I really like Renshaw in there. And Pukowski, uh, he's got a very interesting record that he seems to be, uh, he's got quite a few low low scores in his career, but then quite a few massive scores. And if you look at the list of players who um, have been picked very young with those sorts of records, you have some of the finest players Australia's ever produced in them. So I think might as well. I mean, with no disrespect to Sri Lanka, it's going to be easier facing their bowlers than, than it would have been against India. And who knows, maybe he is going to be a, a star of the future. So let's get him in there now when, when the Australian side's struggling. Yeah, I agree, and I wonder if it's a sort of uh, pointer that they'd be thinking about taking Pekovsky to England for the Ashes Tour, which would be a great learning experience for him. Uh, Adam has also written on his email, I also think Stark may struggle in England this year. Thoughts? Well, Stark has had a, a rough, well, a rough season, really, with the ball, you could say. It's lacked consistency, but I think Stark, if he bowls well, could get the Duke's ball to swing a bit. I agree. And I think that the Australian bowlers have come under criticism for their performance in this test series, and rightfully so. But I think it is worth noting as well that both Melbourne and Sydney were very difficult pitches for fast bowlers to to bowl on, especially in the first innings. And there wasn't really a whole lot on offer. The Australian bowlers weren't terrible. I I think they do need to have question marks over them. But Stark is someone I would be dispensing with reluctantly especially you know, in England. As you say, if the, if the ball happens to be swinging around in England, he could be absolutely devastating. Also, England have a, a really strong tail. So someone with Stark's ability to bowl those quick Yorkers uh, against England's strong tail could be crucial. And we saw actually uh, when England played India last year in England, that the, the ta- England's tail was almost the difference in some of those matches um, between India and England. So yeah, I think Stark still could play a crucial role. But thanks, Adam, for emailing in. All right, now I want to read out a couple of reviews that have been posted on iTunes over the last couple of weeks. Actually, Paul, do you want to read the first one? Yep. The first one is from Franz Dangler, and he says, or she says, I love listening to this every week. Whenever I'm cooking, hanging out the washing, or gardening, I have this playing on my headphones. Wish it went a bit longer, and would love to hear regular player interviews with past Australian players. Yeah, thanks for that one, Uh I don't know if all the listeners wish it went a bit longer. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, and look, I'm always trying to get on past Australian players. It's sort of not that easy to lock them in, but uh, I'm always hunting around. There'll be a few coming up in the next month or so. All right, I'm going to read this review, and I really love this review. It's from Jonty Jameson, who writes, Me and my son always drive home after cricket training, listening to your podcast, then discuss it over dinner. Keep up the good work. And that's a great message. I'm so glad that Jonty and his son uh, listen to it and talk about it together. You know, that's one of the best reviews I've read for a while. So thank you. We're going to take our first break on the listener mail edition of Cricket Unfiltered. I just want to remind you the best way to keep up with any podcast is to subscribe on any podcast app. There are many apps for both Android and Apple phones, including Google Podcasts, Player FM, Pocket Cast. So if you subscribe to Cricket Unfiltered on one of those, you will get every new episode delivered to your phone. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be back to talk about the first one-day international between Australia and India at the SCG. Australia. 
It's a bonus wicket for the Aussies. Jai Richardson has bowled a good first over, now he gets reward in his second over, and it's a big man, Coley. Two for four, India. Yeah, I think from a personal point of view, I'm ecstatic. I'm really excited for the team. Um, yes, it's it's good to put a, a personal performance on the board, but I'm I'm really excited in the way that Australian cricket's heading. The way we prepared for this game, the the way that we, you know, we did our research on the players, um, everything leading up to this game, I felt um, was absolutely perfect, and and obviously the result tonight. Was, was ideal. Like I said before, our preparation um, leading up to this game was absolutely phenomenal. Everyone trained with, with great intensity. We had a, had a really tough session during the week um, that got everyone up and about. Um, and everyone was really excited to play this game. Everyone was really excited to, to get into the retro kits. And I think, I know it's such a small thing being in this, this uniform, but it, it just creates a nice positive sort of feel around the group. Everyone's really excited to get it on and, and throws a few flashbacks in there, so very good. You're listening to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp cricket podcast. That was Jai Richardson speaking after his man of the match performance against India, taking four for 26 in Australia's 34-run victory over India. Jason Berendorf took two for 39. Australia made five for 288, batting first. Half centuries to Kawaja, Shaw Marsh and Peter Hanscom, Richardson and Berendorf reduced India to three for four and then it was uh, really just too hard for them to get back in the game despite a magnificent century by Rohit Sharma. Paul, a good start to the Australia v India one day series for Australia. You know, the selectors, they brought some new faces into the 50 over team and uh, paid off. Certainly did, and Jai Richardson's an exciting prospect. I remember the 2015 World Cup that there was a key moment when I think the Australian selectors realised that Hazelwood was certainly in our top 11, that he'd been sort of in and out of the side during the World Cup. Then they got him in there, and he was not as, um, he was a little bit unsung compared to Mitchell Stark, but getting that bowling lineup correct was one of the reasons we won the World Cup. I wonder what Jai Richardson would be like um, with a, under English conditions in the World Cup. I tend to think he could be pretty scary uh, and pretty devastating. And no one's giving Australia a chance of defending the World Cup at the moment. But with a player like him and Berendorf, I really like Berendorf as well. Those two in and around the bid for selection gives us um, something to be optimistic about. Yeah, we were discussing this in the press box um, at the game that, you know, if you say think Hazelwood, Stark and Cummins are locks for the World Cup squad, then there's probably a spot for one more fast bowler, maybe two, depending on the balance of squad, but definitely one. So you sort of got a shootout between Richardson, Berendorf, Stanlake and Coulton Isle uh, for that last fast bowling spot. And uh, I think Richardson showed that he should be really strongly considered for that spot because he bowls a bit like Brett Lee. I think he's a, he's a slight point of difference to the way Pat Cummins and Stark bowls. He's a, a bit skiddier. He bowls a bit quicker, I think, um, than most of the others at the moment. So I just think Richardson might be might be a little bit of a smoky to make the World Cup squad. I don't even think that Stark, Cummins and Hazelwood should be locks for the World Cup. They may well all be picked and I may well be may well agree with that. But I think you've just got to rank them right off the bat. And I, I think at the moment, for me, Richardson and Berendorf have strong claims to be right on the same level as those guys. I would put Coulter Nile uh, at a lower level and I would put 
Billy Stanlake at a lower level as well. I think that uh, I don't have the optimism about Billy Stanlake that a lot of people do. I think he's going to be not quite accurate enough to succeed in the World Cup. Um, maybe he'll prove me wrong. Yeah, it's also curious that Hazelwood, Stark and Cummins are resting for this one-day series because there's only a dozen matches now until the start of the World Cup for Australia's 50 overside. So not only are they not there and showing what they can do in the 50-over game, but they're giving other bowlers a chance to sort of jump ahead of them. It shows, once again, where Australia's priorities are, that there's been no outcry about them resting. But if they suddenly said, OK, we're going to play them in these three games and then they're going to, we're going to rest them from the first test against Sri Lanka, there'd be a national outcry. As, what are you doing? Test cricket is the prime version of the sport. This is unacceptable. Yet, if you were being honest, you'd say, unless we have a disaster we are expected to beat Sri Lanka, even with not our very best side. The rest of the world is focused on the World Cup. No one's going to remember the Australia-Sri Lanka series in any length of time. So it is curious that this close to the World Cup, our three frontline fast bowlers aren't playing in one day. And in Australia's 5 for 288, Kawaja, Marsh and Hanscom uh, batted well. They were quite conservative, Australia, in setting the total. But the thing that seemed to raise the most eyebrows was Glenn Maxwell batting at seven. I think he came in with barely two overs to go in the inning. So you had the batsman with the best strike rate facing the, the fewest amount of balls almost. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a game that was full of positives, this was the one um, overwhelming negative for me. That uh, I really like Kawaja, but he took 81 balls to score 59. Um, and then Maxwell came out and got 11 not out off five. It reminded me of the bad old days of one-day cricket when Jeff Marsh used to go out and do that and then someone like Steve Wall would only come in for a couple of balls at the end. I've said it ad infinitum that Maxwell should open the batting for Australia in one-day cricket because he is best suited to when there are only two fieldsmen outside the, the circle. He, he could absolutely explode in those opening 10 overs. And if he's only going to face five balls anyway, he's almost like a free wicket. What have we got to lose? So I thought that's very curious, him batting so low. And I note that he had a strike rate over 100 more than Australia's next highest, albeit from a small sample size. Yep, agree with you on that one, Paul. All right, so let's move on to our next listener email. And this one is from Nicholas Fuster. Now, Nicholas first emailed the Australian Cricket Podcast, back on January 19th, 2014, five years ago. And Nicholas was just 11 years old then. So five years later, he's still listening. He's a bit older now, what, 16, I reckon. So, uh, yeah, thanks for emailing, Nicholas. And here's some highlights from your latest email. G'day, Menas. I'd like to write a bit about Aaron Finch. Just before I go on, I just wonder what sort of influence I've had in... Nicholas's um, growing up, Paul, and whether it's been a positive influence. Oh, I'm think listening to you over the course of five years, Menas, can only be a positive influence. Especially about cricket. <laughs> um, all right, so back to the email. I'd like to write a bit about Aaron Finch. Without getting tangential, Finch is so clearly not an opener that it is painful to watch him bat. He has made his runs for Victoria as a lower middle-order batsman because he rarely has to face the new ball, meaning the ball won't swing enough to trouble his admittedly poor footwork. He'd be an invaluable asset against an older ball, but he's looked so incredibly clueless against Ishant and Boomer this series. It pains me to see one of my favourite cricketers struggle so much. I think, look, this has been talked about a lot, but yeah, you know, Finch was dumped for the final test of the series against India, and I think he has a legitimate case 
for asking what is going on. I mean, this is the going back to the selectors. You know, they've picked someone out of position and he's failed and then they drop him. Well, I also think that the other point to that is that why did they pick him in the first place if they aren't willing to give him more of a chance? Yeah, he hasn't set the world on fire in a, a short space of time. But when you pick a side, surely you're picking a side saying, we are convinced that this person is a player for the long term. And I think that Finch's recent record in first-class cricket was very good. And I was one of the ones advocating for his selection. And after a very brief, um, you know, few test matches against, um, you know, in difficult conditions, playing in the UAE and then playing against an Indian pretty decent bowling attack, and as you say, opening the innings, is that it for him? I mean, I think the odds are he'll probably never play test cricket for Australia again, and that just seems manifestly unfair when you look at so many other players who've had more opportunities. So if you thought, if you thought he was good enough in the first place, you need to pick him and give him a longer opportunity. Yeah, and his selection opening against India in particular lacked foresight because in the UAE you could sort of have some logic that will get Finch to open against the new ball in, in pretty good batting conditions. But in Australia and heading into an Ashes year, you want to build an opening combination that can succeed in, in all conditions. And I'm not sure Finch was ever equipped to do that. So you, you were kind of setting him up to fail from the beginning and really unfortunate that they didn't at least move him down into the middle order for a, a, go, a go against India towards the end of the series and just see if you know batting at five or six suited him better. All right, back to Nicholas Fuster's email. He'd also, he also wrote, I'd like to have also written about Elisa Healy's husband and how overrated he is, which we touched on a bit before. Do you agree with that, Paul? No, I don't think that Stark is overrated. I think that he is rated about correctly, and that is he's a, a very decent fast bowler and at his best is um, one of the best in the world. But once he starts to lose the ability to swing it and when he gets a little bit inaccurate, then he falls away rather quickly. And I think most people kind of recognise that about him and we're hoping that for the uh, Ashes and for the World Cup, English conditions will suit him. And if he clicks, then he'll be a match winner. If he doesn't, I think the selectors need to have the confidence to be able to dispense with him sooner rather than later. Now, uh, just to finish off on Nicholas's email, he also writes, I also want to have a bit of a sook about how Glenn Maxwell is the greatest wasted talent of his generation. Now, we just spoke about Maxi, and I guess what I want to highlight from this is, my fear is that we've got the Ashes in the World Cup this year. If Maxwell is sort of left on the outer, he might think now is the time for him to devote himself to playing in, in T20 leagues around the world because he's still young enough to earn like millions and millions of dollars over the next five years. And if the Australian selectors aren't interested in him, why shouldn't he go and ply his trade where they want him? Yeah, I agree with, I agree with Nicholas. I think that Glenn Maxwell, I mean, he averages 41 in first-class cricket. So anyone who says, oh, he can't play the, the Red Bull game, he's too extravagant. I mean, he's, he's got a, a higher average than plenty of the players who've been picked ahead of him. The most damning statistic about Maxwell, the most damning fact about Maxwell is this. He has never played a test match in Australia. You can't say that he's been given a fair opportunity when the only test matches he's ever played have been outside Australia. Indeed, all of them have been in Asia. You look at you know, Mitchell Marsh, Sean Marsh, Rob Quiney, Aaron Finch, name after name after name. If we sat down, we could probably come up with 15 names of players who are probably less talented than Maxwell and who have been given a chance to play Test cricket in Australia. It's ridiculous that he hasn't been given that opportunity, and it's ridiculous now at our hour of need when they seem to have put a, a line through his name. I find it um, infuriating. 
Yep, agree with that one. All right, now on to our next email. This is from Justin. Hey, Menas, greetings from Boston, my favourite city in the world apart from Sydney. Unfortunately, that was me, by the way. Unfortunately, the last year or so hasn't been as kind to you Aussies. Obviously, it would have been a very different series against India with Smith and Warner in the team. Do you think Australia would have won if we had Smith and Warner, Paul? No, because I think that that it all came down to that toss in Melbourne. That Given that the Sydney game was washed out, we went, went into Melbourne, won all, and I think it was a massive toss to win. That the, the wicket became progressively harder as the match went on. So I think Australia, had they won the toss in Melbourne, even without Smith and Warner, may well have won the series. Well, it's, it's so hard to speculate. Maybe if we'd had Smith and Warner, we might have won the, the Adelaide Test match. Certainly, if you look at what happened four years ago when we beat India 2-0, if you took Smith and Warner's contributions out of that series, where Smith scored more runs than anyone's ever scored in an Australia-India series, and Warner also averaged 50-plus, you probably would say Australia would have lost that series. So, um, look, I think the fact of the matter is that India are a better side than Australia without Smith and Warner. With Smith and Warner back in, in Australian conditions, probably pretty 50-50. Now, Justin also continues, anyways, looking forward to a brilliant summer or winter, in your case, of cricket in 2019 with the World Cup followed by the Ashes. Here's some comedy from Justin. England have no excuses not to win the World Cup on home soil this time around. That's a joke, isn't it? Surely. I mean, England have played in 11 World Cups. They've hosted, this is, I think, the fourth World Cup they've hosted. Maybe fifth World this Cup. This will be the fifth. Fifth World Cup they've hosted. They've been trying for 44 years to win a World Cup. Why, why will this year be any different? You know, the interesting thing about the England side that I'm going to find fascinating to watch is this. That Trevor Bayliss has inculcated in them a sense of fearlessness. That if we're five for 30, it doesn't matter. We've got players all the way down who can score quickly. Let's just back ourselves and we will still get a decent total. And most of the time that works, but every now and again, they have a blowout and they get bowled out for 70 or 80. This World Cup format is very dangerous for them in that regard because I think they will probably cruise through the group stages. There'll come a point where it's inevitable that they're going to make the semifinals. So they're going to have had, I don't know, four weeks of playing games where it doesn't really matter whether you win or not. When you're four for 30, you go out there, oh, we've got 300 anyway, isn't that fantastic? Then all of a sudden, the first semifinal... The pressure comes home to roost. Suddenly they are in trouble against a South African side or an Indian side. Then it's going to be very difficult difficult to, to play with that freedom um, and not blow up and then say, oh, we're, we're the minor premiers and lost badly in the semi-final, which I'm sure would give you a lot of pleasure measures. Well, I think they did it, uh, was it last year or the year before in the Champions Trophy where they got to the semi-finals and then lost to Pakistan yeah. at home in a bit of a dust bowl. So it's every chance of happening. Wouldn't that be great? All right, next email, Jake Payne. Firstly, I continue to really enjoy the pod. Even in England, it's great to hear the enthusiasm for cricket you guys have, especially when pommy bashing, or more recently, your own guys. Well, we just did the pommy bashing in the last email. <laughs> My question for the, for the podcast team is about the Australian obsession with the number six all-rounders slot. Now, he says about Pat Cummins that Pat Cummins is a superstar and at the moment could bat anywhere in Australia's top six and still be as effective with the ball. Now, I'm not sure if moving Pat Cummins into the top six is a sensible idea. Even if you batted him at six or seven, the problem with that is, is you know, you need him 
bowling a lot of overs. And it's just too much to ask someone to, to bowl 25, 30 overs in an innings if you, you know, spend all day in the field and then to come and bat in the top six. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Pat Cummins, but I, I would say that the reason he shouldn't bat in the top six, that there's an even more important reason than that, is that he's actually not a good enough batsman to bat in the top six. He showed enormous endeavour in this series and in that, that match where in Melbourne where he almost got us to a win, he, he was clearly the best batsman. But his overall record is 21 uh, at a test average, which is, which is fine. But compared that to history, for, for players who've played 50 or more innings at a particular number... The best number eight in history is Daniel Vittori, who averaged 40 at number eight. The worst is Shane Warne, who averaged 19 at number eight. That Pat Cummins is actually not averaging even all that well for a number eight. You look at India, their typical number eight is Ashwin, who averages 29, or Jadeja, who averages 32. Sam Curran, for England, bats at number eight. He averages about 36 in test cricket. Adil Rashid, who bats at nine averages about 20. Stuart Broad, who bats at 10, averages about number 19. I think in a perfectly running Australian side, Pat Cummins is probably a number nine. Yeah, eight or nine. It doesn't make so much of a difference to me. You know, Stark and Cummins. But I agree with you. You don't, you don't want to move him up the order. He, he doesn't have the, sh- the range of shots that for a top-order batsman. You know, we saw he can, he can survive. He can play nice shots, nice drives. But he, he doesn't have a, a big range of stroke play. And I think Australian sides have been most successful when their number six is a batsman and that somewhere in the top six we have a fifth bowling option. And that, you know, when Steve Waugh was at number six or uh, when Greg Chappell was in the side and could bowl some medium pace, rather than it's very rare to get someone like a Keith Miller who can bat at six and um, give an extra bowling option. And just to finish up Jake's email from Oxford, he says, and get Steve Smith on the pod. He must have some spare time on his hands. (laughs) Well, I I did meet Steve Smith uh, socially not so long ago, and he was very nice to me, which I assume then he doesn't listen to the podcast. But um, (laughs) I I was going to ask him, but I didn't get a chance. But you never know. Miracles sometimes do happen. All right, now let's get on to some more reviews. And these are from... uh, Europe, these reviews. So uh, this is from the European iTunes uh, from Well Done on the Podcast. I can't see the name, but it says, I've been listening from Switzerland in the past two years, and I have to say this is the most entertaining cricket podcast going around. Thank you. And another review from B and M and M. A great pod for those who just love cricket. Great journos and guests talking in great detail about the game. So thank you so much for leaving those reviews. Can you read the next review for me, Paul? Sure. It's from Mitch from Shady Pines. A must for any cricket-loving nuffy. The King Menas hosts very skillfully and has a plethora of guests at his disposal, plus some big-name interviews. Great podcast. And after meeting the man himself, a lovely fellow cricketing tragic. Yeah, I met Mitch out at the Sydney Test. Great bloke. And thanks so much for leaving the review. Another review from Kendall. The best cricket podcast out. AKA Manners does a great job. Quality guests and plenty of opinions. A must for cricket fans. Thanks again for those reviews. All right, we're going to take our final break in the listener mail edition of Cricket Unfiltered. And uh, while we're on the subject, if you want to email in, uh, you can email me at OzCricketPod, that's A-U-S CricketPod at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at 
a manners. Yeah, any topics or anything you want us to discuss over the next few months, send your emails in. Quick break, and then you'll come back and hear the dulcet tones of Virat Kohli, followed by Ravi Shastri. It was a team effort through and through, and um, that's what we strive for. We strive to play well as a team. Single spells and single innings don't win you games of cricket, especially test matches, and this is a team that doesn't play for single innings and single spells. We play uh, to make the team win. Um, if you ask me, if you want me to single out a contribution, for me, Vihari playing 70 balls with a new ball in MCG is as big as anyone getting 100 or anyone crossing 70 or 80. So that's how we recognize contribution. We don't look at contribution as something that goes up on the honours board. And um, if you want to win a series like this, you have to play well as a team. So I would say it was a total team performance. As I said, in, in the 10 years that I've played, it's the proudest moment that I've experienced. And we're so happy for the whole team because it's a young uh, bunch of guys and to have that belief and to keep striving for excellence on a daily basis and to get a reward like this, we definitely have to be happy. And um, although, it, you know, changing history or creating history is still, I would say, not what I'm thinking of. It's pure satisfaction of the hard work of 12 months and to understand that what we believed in has been proven right. And regardless of the whole world being against you, if you're striving in the right direction and you have good intent, God's going to reward you. So that's what I'm more happy about. I mean, this tour started 12 months ago in South Africa, where we said uh, there's a certain brand of cricket we're going to play. We're going to experiment with combinations, find out what suits the team the best and take it forward from there. So we learned a heck of a lot in South Africa. We learned a lot in England. We made mistakes which we didn't make in this series. You know, we learned from those mistakes and fired at home properly. I'll, I'll tell you how satisfying it is for me. World Cup 83, World Championship 85. This is as big or even bigger because this is in the truest format of the game. That's test cricket, which is meant to be the toughest. So, you know, I said in Melbourne, you know, when uh, I think I mentioned people taking pot shots and firing blanks. You know, I was not, I was not joking there because I knew how hard this team had worked because when you fire from there, by the time that blank crosses, crosses the southern hemisphere, it's blown away with the wind like a tracer bullet. Okay? But lead, with something in it, can be pretty serious. And that's what we fired right through the series against Australia. We were committed, and it jolly well made a bloody difference at the end of it all. This is an Indian cricket team that will jump over a cliff to win a game for the country. That's the determination. That's the ruthlessness. That's the mindset with which this team went to play in the series. Just one thing uh, before I leave, I'd like to thank all my buddies from the Indian media. Without your support, I don't think we would have played as well as we've done right through the 12 months. So thank you very much. Well, entertaining stuff there from Ravi Shastri, Paul. You know, there was some criticism directed at Shastri after that press conference that he took a bit of the, the limelight and the attention away from Coley and his team. But I didn't see it that way. I, I thought it was just a proud coach and a proud Indian cricketer wanting to, uh, you know, soak up a history-making moment. Yeah, I agree. And I think that they're entitled to feel that, you know, he's entitled to feel as happy as he is and maybe throw a few... Um, uh, barbs at some of the people in the press that, back home that have given him some trouble. 
Uh, and I really like the way that they both regard this as such a significant victory. For, for Shastri to put it on the same level as them winning the 83 World Cup is, and I'd argue that it's on a much higher level than them winning the 84-85 World Championship of Cricket, but that's fantastic. And the, and the, the primacy of Test Cricket is great. And in a, an, a, a form of the sport that we're always worrying about, having the Indian captain and coach so keen on it can only be a good thing. Yeah, and I just like Shastri having a bit of personality and ha- uh, saying a few crazy statements. You know, journalists and media people always want people to have more personality and put more of themselves out there. So I have no problem with what Shastri did. And I really liked what Virat Kohli said when he was asked, you know, what performance or player really stood out to you and he sort of he pushed the team line and then he just said that you know Vahari in the the Boxing Day test batting through the first session didn't get many runs but soaked up a lot of balls paved the way for the middle order and I just thought that was a really mature answer from Virat Kohli and and signs that we're seeing this sort of emergence of a, a really fine captain. I agree and they're going to be a very difficult side for for any side that they encounter anywhere around the world. That there was a lot of talk that they've won all these easy series at home. They've won relatively easy series away. How will they go when they have the three big series? South Africa, England, and Australia away. Well, they only won one of the three, but in history they would have won none of the three. They didn't do too badly against South Africa. The four-one scoreline against England wasn't reflective of the series, and they've come to Australia and um, you know two-one probably wasn't even reflective of how much they dominated. Yeah, and I just wonder how significant this victory will be going forward for this Indian team. You know, will we see... So, say when Australia beat the West Indies in 1995, a 2-1 series victory, and it catapulted Australia into the best test team in the world and they never looked back from that win against the West Indies from there they they went all around the world winning series I wonder if the Indian team can do the same it's a good question I mean this is a landmark moment in the history of cricket there's no doubt about that 71 years and I think this is the 28th attempt the first time an Asian side has won a test series in Australia it's like the four minute mile being broken or something will we see the floodgates open I'm not so sure. I still think that Australia is always going to be very difficult to to play against at home. It's fair to say that uh, it was a weak Australian side. Australia will be better in the future. But the arguments that previously you could have about India, you know, well, they they can't win away. Well, now, the last time Australia won in India, apart from the the series in 2004, was almost 50 years ago now. So an Indian fan can say to an Aussie, well, we've won once in the last half century in your country – You've won once in the last half century of our country. And as India continue to rise and their 1.3 billion people um, are kind of getting more and more affluent, Australia with 25 million isn't going to find it harder and harder to compete, I think. And uh, just about, we spoke before about, you know, Smith and Warner not being available in this series. And, it, you know, speaking about that 1995 Australia victory in the West Indies, Alan Border said to me when he was interviewed on the podcast that, Australia actually never beat the West Indies at full strength. It took the West Indies for, you know, a lot of their great players to retire for Australia to actually be able to win. So he actually views, you know, Australia's victory in the West Indies. as Australia got the West Indies sort of already on the decline and that's how they were able to win. And I guess you could sort of flip that to this current series that without Smith and Warner, have India actually beaten Australia at their best or have they sort of beaten a weakened side? So I guess that's sort of one thing that history may look back on 
with some question marks. It may. Uh, if I was an Indian fan, I would say, well, we didn't have Ashwin for most of it and we didn't have Shaw. And who knows what Shaw will be like. His record at the moment, he's only a youngster. But if he goes on... Yeah, but we know what Smith and Warner are like. So No, but it's like in years to come, if it yeah. turns out that Shaw is an absolute superstar, they could say that we weren't the, the, the strongest side either. I get your point. The interesting thing would have been that had the Australian great side occurred a decade earlier, it would have been wonderful to see that Australian great side take on the true might of the West Indies in the mid-80s. And I think then it, it's almost a toss of the coin as to who would have won that. Yeah, that's uh, a game that will be played out in our fantasies, I suggest, <laughs> Paul. So now to the last listener email. This is from Sean Shand. Hi, Andrew and host. Hosts. The BBL often gets blamed for our lack of test batsmen because it develops them specifically for the short format and takes focus away from the shield. Do you think this is the case? Why or why not? Well... Look, it's such a complicated question about what's happened to our batsmen. One thing I do think it definitely does is it gives batsmen more options. If you are an aggressive-thinking batsman whose game is not built upon defence, you can be thinking, well, it doesn't matter if I'm not so good at Sheffield Shield cricket. I can have a really good career playing white ball cricket, whether it's T20 or 50-over cricket, but especially T20 all around the world. And you have to look at one of my favourites, Max Bryant, who plays for the Brisbane Heat and has played for Queensland in the 50-over cricket. His game is built upon whacking the ball as far as he can for as long as he can. And in an an era before T20 cricket, you might say to him, you are just never going to have a career unless you have a defence. But I would say now there are more options for someone like a Max Bryant. So I don't know if the BBL should be blamed for lack of defensive techniques, but certainly gives batsmen more options. Well, if you're going to blame the BBL, you'd have to also blame the IPL. And that doesn't ring true because India's going great guns ever since the IPL came out. I have a contrarian take on this. And my contrarian take is we all say, oh, yeah, you've got to have a um, strong left arm and you've got to get your foot to the pitch of the ball, get a really good solid technique first. And then if you want to play um, and play a few slog shots, that's fine. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the BBL is improving our batting and that players of yesteryear who just sat on the splice and never scored any runs would have benefited from having played a bit of T20 cricket. David Warner probably played for Australia far sooner than he otherwise would have because of T20 cricket. He's the sort of player that you'd say, oh, he could never succeed at test level. Um, Yet he came in and and proved absolutely everyone wrong. I think that players like Chris Lynn, who've come through the BBL, if he hadn't had so many injuries, um, may well have done very well at test level. And uh, he also adds to this, he says, you know, if the BBL is creating more short-form specialists, why are our one-day and T20 sides still struggling so that's an interesting point. You'd think, uh, having had a strong big bash now for a while, we'd have a better 50 over and T20 teams. It's a very good point. And I think one of the reasons that we don't is that we consistently deprioritise international T20s and 50 over games. And I've agreed with that, that when Australia went to South Africa a couple of years ago with a B-side and got belted in the one-dayers over there, and it was humiliating, I remember saying at the time, well, it was the only thing to do because you there's so much cricket going on. If you're going to deprioritise a series, prior, do that. Get fired up for the World Cups. Get fired up for the, um, for the important matches. But every time that there's been a, a clash, it's always the short form that's, um, that's lost out, including when we played Sri Lanka in Geelong with half our side missing because we had the best side players going over to the, for the, preparing for the India Test Series um, recently. So Australia 
if they want to succeed at the short versions of the game, uh, have to give them the love that they need. Yeah, and just on Australia's 50-over side, I pulled a stat out that Australia have picked 44 different players for our 50-over side since the last World Cup. I mean, that's way too many. It's incredible. You, you, you can't expect to have a successful team with that sort of revolving door. And I know there's injuries and you talk about players resting and other tours, but you shouldn't be at a number like 44 in a four-year span for Australian cricket. You might have your best, you know, 15, and then you might have a few players who are just outside that that come in when you're rotating. But, yeah, with, with picking 44 players in four years, it's no wonder we've been so bad. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. But, again, I, I suppose I can't be too inconsistent in my own position that I say when we were faced with some of those meaningless series um, and you, you're going to pick the, the best bowlers and have them burn out, sometimes you do but have you to... You should just have a... If you have a second 11... Yeah, true. It should be, you know, this number should be like 25 over four years, not 44. All right, so thank you, Sean, for that thought-provoking email. All right, now just to Facebook and Twitter. I got some messages in there. Now, this is from Brett Lovell. Just listen to the the podcast with the Foxtel executives. And this is something I thought of. He says, Menas, you should have told them Spider-Cam is stupid. Paul, you and I have discussed this before. You know my feelings about Spider-Cam, that I'm not a big fan of it. But, yes. but I want to answer Brett here. When I was sitting down with the, you know, the general manager of Fox Cricket and the head of Fox TV, I didn't think it was appropriate <laughs> for me to push an agenda that I don't think is shared by a lot of people. If I thought I had a lot of the cricket community sort of behind me saying, yes, Spider-Cam sucks, but no one seems to support me. So it would have just seemed like, you know, his man is being a moron with the (laughs) Foxtel executives trying to push his own agenda. So that's why I didn't ask him about it. Well, it's not exactly the biggest issue that's facing, um, you know, there's not people people aren't marching in the streets. Yeah, no one's upset about (laughs) it. Like, I bang on about it. But no one else seems to support me. I, I don't support you. I like. I like. That's Spider-Cam. what I'm saying. No, most a lot of people like Spider Cam. And you know what I'd like to see happen when on when was it earlier this summer when um in one of the the T twenties it got hit. What they should do is get Hawkeye out there to work out where the ball would have gone, and then <laughs> if it turns out that it was going to be a skyer, go out there and have a little cannon and bang straight up, and someone goes under it and see if they can catch it. That would be awesome. Boy, just one step too far there. That might be edited out. Um, the one thing I do, when I'm at the cricket and at the end of, you know, I'm often there after everyone's gone home and I see Spider Cam come down from the ropes and the team go out to take Spider Cam away. I think, like, now's my chance. Like, if I could just somehow get Spider Cam in the back of my car, I, I could say cricket. I look, at anyway, think we're in the future. That's right. Look, I just want people to be, if people like it, good on them. I don't. Uh, but, yeah, that's Brett why I didn't do it. I want to thank Tim and Steve for their nice messages. Tim really liked the episode I did called The Making of Fox Cricket. Definitely go back and listen to that if you missed it. Krish has uh, emailed in, The BBL this year is so boring to watch, barely any world-class players. Increase the overseas quota to four in the playing 11s as a bare minimum. I actually think Chris has a very good point here, Paul. I would like to see a few more international players come into the Big Bash. I agree. And I think that Australia needs to say, we don't want to have the Bangladesh Premier League outbidding us next time round. That why is De Villiers playing there and not here? And what do we do to make sure that in future we get players of his calibre playing down under? If it's increasing the, the quota to four, yeah, I'd be fine with that. Um, 
I'd be fine with them give, giving a budget for a marquee signing as well, something mm. like that. But when those players are out there, we should be trying to get them here. Yeah, Rashid Khan said he's got seven brothers who all bowl leg spinners, so at least three or four of them should be brought over for uh, big bash teams. Maybe that, well, if there's eight of them, maybe it should be compulsory for one franchise to have each. <laughs> a Khan in every <laughs> franchise. But also I like um, bringing in some players from some of the smaller nations. We've got Lamachay and the Nepalese uh, Spin bowler, we've got Rashid Khan, we've got a couple of Afghanistan players. I mean, they do bring a richness to the competition that you don't have to have all the Indian stars here to make it an attractive competition. That's true. But I still also think that we should aim for a recently retired player like Dhoni or someone and try and get him There's someone better than Dhoni. I mean, he's passed it. No, but any player who's retired is, you know, of of necessity. Mm. Get Tendulkar, that'd be good. And and Dhoni's not retired yet. All right, another message here from Stephen Gill. Would love to hear more about you, Menas, which I think would be a recipe to make this podcast fall down uh, in standards pretty quickly. But thank you. And he says, what are your memories of cricket growing up and the first match you attended? Well, I, you know, I don't want to. I want to talk about the first matches I attended, actually, because I think that's quite interesting. But start with you, Paul. Do you know the first match you attended? Yeah, I remember it really well. Um, it was Australia versus the West Indies, uh, one day game, SCG, the season of eighty four, eighty five. It was when the West Indies were at their absolute peak, and Australia could barely even contemplate beating them in a game. Went with my dad and my uncle. And when we got there, we discovered that another uncle was 30 seats across from us. Australia got 200-odd, which back in those days was a half-decent total. And then we went bang, bang, bang and got three quick wickets. And each time we got a wicket, we'd stand up and wave to my other uncle. The whole crowd was excited, like, are we going to beat the West Indies? And then Viv and Clive Lloyd came together and said, okay, guys, um, you're not going to beat us today. And they just all class. Um, And remember one of the things I remember was that at one point – they were dominating the Australian bowling so much. Clive Lloyd played, I think, three overly cautious defensive shots in a row, really leaning over the balls off the spinner to defend just to amuse the crowd, to sort of say, um, this bowler is so bad, I will jokingly take him more seriously than he needs to be. And everyone in the crowd's sort of giggling and going, God. <laughs> and then my last memory is, we left before Viv Richards got his 100 to beat the, the rush, which was a smart thing for my dad to do with a seven-year-old son. But um, it would have been nice to have the memory of having seen Viv score a century. I think that is criminal to leave <laughs> early. I mean, I know Australia was losing, but I have been burned so many times leaving cricket early. I left an Ashes test early, Mr. Darren Goff hat trick. I... Um, I remember there was a one-day game there where just after David Hooks had passed away at the SCG and I was with a friend, and I said, there's no way they're going to come back on here. It's raining. It was raining. There's no way there's going to be any more cricket played. Let's go home, get home, turn on the TV. They're playing. I think Brett Lee hit a six off the last ball to win the game, something like that. So I've been burned too many times to to really leave a match early. But my first cricket games, I, I tracked them down. So my first one was Australia v Pakistan, the second final of the World Series on February 25th, 1990. And I remember what happened was I'd, I'd done work experience and I'd met Mark Waugh recently. I went, I was, couldn't wait to see him bat. And then I think he was run out for not many. It was one of the first uh, one-day games he played. And I was gutted to see uh, one of my heroes run out. And my first test match was the... 
I almost went to a test match the year before, 89-90, which was um, Australia v. Pakistan. And I think it was washed out. And it's well known. I think Le- Darren Lehman was 12th man, a very young 12th mm. man for that test match. Um, in a, and I don't think he played his first test for another 10 years almost. So he was so close in 89-90, and then he had to wait 10 years. So the next one I went to was 1991 Ashes Test, January 4th to 8th. I remember a few things about that match. Firstly, there was the first time I met Jeff Marsh, Alan Border, and Dean Jones. I had to wait outside the pub while I had a drink with my parents, so good lesson there. And then... Um, <laughs> Yeah, Mo Matthews made 128 in that test match. And what I remember more than anything was Mike Atherton completely destroying the test match. He made 105 off 349 balls in an absolute snooze fest that was only brightened up by a beautiful 123 by David Gower. And at the end of that test match, Phil Tufnell took 5 for 61 and gave England a faint sniff of winning that test match. But there you go, Stephen. They're my two first cricket games. Do you remember them? I remember... Um, you must remember Mo making 100 at the SCG. I remember Mo making 100 against New Zealand. Um, I think it might have been the year before when Australia uh, were in all sorts of trouble and he and Border came together and um, had, a, had a massive partnership. That was, that was a strong memory. My first ever test match that I went to, so that, I went to that first one-day game in 84-5, went to a first test match the year after, 85-6, uh, the second day of the Test match against India, and saw Sonny Gavaskar piling on the runs, and India declared at eight for six hundred, and Australia were none for five at stumps. And remember thinking before before a ball was bowled, this is great. I'm at the SCG, but I just wish it was a one day rather than a Test match. Which now that I'm a massive Test match fan, is a reminder again that short form cricket is a, a way to get the kids into it. Absolutely. And uh, just quickly on Stephen's message, he asked me if I had any inside word on Maxi versus Cricket Australia. And look, I don't. Uh, one thing I have noticed, though, is since Justin Langer has been coach of Australia, the treatment of Glenn Maxwell has changed. So you have to think that uh, the opinion of Maxwell from Langer is different to what Lehman had. But yeah, that's just my observation. So thanks to everybody who emailed in. Um, it's been a fun show, hasn't it, Paul? Absolutely. We're just going to end on two reviews. Uh, Paul, can you read the first one? This one's from Plain 38 Well done, Menners. For mine, the ultimate way to keep up with the latest on the Aussie cricket scene. Love your recent interview with AB and Healy. Great insights into two of the all-time greats. Great work, brother. TK. Yeah, thanks, TK. And uh, TK has a pretty good podcast himself called Talking with TK, where he interviews a lot of athletes, Australian athletes, about their careers. So if you... You want to hear his podcast, Talking with TK. Excellent listen as well. And final review is from Sea Lions 8, a must for cricket lovers. Timely and thoughtful analysis by cricket journalists of what's happening in Australian cricket, both on the field and in the broadcast box. Good interviews and a great host. Well, thank you, uh, Sea Lions, for that uh, review. I wonder if they're related to Nathan Lyon. Uh, yeah, so thanks to everybody that have left reviews on iTunes or any podcast app. It really does mean a lot to me to hear the feedback from you and uh, helps other people find the show. Paul, thanks so much for coming on Cricket Unfiltered this week. Thanks, Menas. It's been a pleasure. Looking forward to the cricket. A couple of one days and then uh, interesting series against Sri Lanka. What, what, what will the crowd be like at the day-night test in Brisbane and then Canberra's first ever test match? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the Canberra test. I'm going to head across to Manuka down and across to Monica from Sydney for that match. And uh, 
be great to uh, see the Sri Lankans in action. I think they're going to pose a few more problems, actually, than Australia are giving them credit for. So uh, could be more interesting than I think people are predicting. You have been listening to Cricket Unfiltered. I've been your host, Andrew Mentzel. The next show is a big bash-focused show. I'm going to be chatting with Sam Landsberger from the Herald Sun, hopefully having Ben Cutting on the show. So lots, lots of big bash action coming up in the next episode. Paul, take care, and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Benners. Thanks, listeners, and see you soon. 